We live at a pivotal time in history. And at the rate things are unfolding in this nation and really abroad, we sense that we're heading towards some major cataclysmic conflict. It's inevitable. Left and right do not describe two approaches to politics, but in large extent they describe two religions. And the fervor behind these two sides is nothing less than religious. There is compassion on both sides. There is concern on both sides. And there is profound commitment on both sides. And yet they perceive opposite vehicles for realizing those objectives. And the church is really silent. Even if the church largely um, adheres to the right, and perhaps for legitimate reasons, the church does not seem to have much of an answer at a time when violence is shaking the foundations of our culture. Platitudes just ring pretty shallow at this point. Somebody recently said to me, did you see how they were mocking on the news? They said, we don't need your prayers anymore. We need changes, you know. And there's a sense in which I can understand the statement, you know, when, when massacres are occurring across the nation and people are saying the same thing they've always said, aren't they ignoring something terribly wrong in the fabric of our society? I want to explore this morning what it is that's terribly wrong and is there any way to get it back? Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by spirit or by a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that that day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Unless the apostasy comes first. Your Bible may say unless the falling away comes first, but it is apostasion in the Greek. Unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction or perdition who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you I was telling you these things and you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. So he says that the end is not going to come until the man of lawlessness is revealed. And he's waiting for the apostasy. He's waiting for the apostasy, which means the divorce, the great betrayal, where the church betrays her heavenly husband. We spoke of her as the bride yesterday, right? 
So he's waiting, this man of sin is waiting for the betrayal, the, the divorce, the apostasy. And he says, <clears throat> you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. There's something that is restraining this lawlessness in the culture and the apostasy is going to remove that restraint so that this ugliness can finally be revealed. Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the brightness of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan or the energizing of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love for the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or mouth or letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. So the falling away only comes when a restraining influence in the culture is removed through apostasy. When apostasy removes a certain restraining influence in the culture, then this man of lawlessness, this man who has no law, who has no restraint, is going to be revealed. And he is going to be defined by someone who acts according to the energizing of Satan. Now we know that the energizing of Christ in the church is what we spoke about last night. That's the anointing. That's the unction of God moving on human hearts to speak, to share, to care. We see this in 1 Peter 4. If any man speaks, let him speak as the very oracle of God. If any man serves, let him serve with the strength or the dunamis, the, the power that God provides. And this is a recognized necessity, at least in this context, for Christians. We have to have this anointing. The body of Christ means the body of Christos, the anointed one. So if we don't have that anointing, we're not the body of the anointed one. Amen? But there is a certain authority that anointing gives. There is a clarity that anointing gives, and there is a power that anointing gives. In the same way, the energizing of Satan provides clarity, authority, 
and power to dynamics that were sleeper cells up to that point. Now, some are going to make much of the fact that this is an individual that Paul is referring to. I don't deny that it may be um, typified by an individual, but he's not referring to an individual. Just as he speaks of the body of Christ as one new man. And yet he refers to multitudes under this rubric. In the same way he is speaking of the man of lawlessness. As the revelation of man without God coming into his power. And this man of lawlessness began his odyssey in Eden made a real attempt at the Tower of Babel, got confused and pulled things together again and again and again throughout history. And he has been moving toward his apocalypsis, his unveiling, his revealing. Now we pray and we hope that we are part of that body of Christ that is also moving toward its unveiling, its apocalypsis, its maturation, the full measure of of the stature which belongs to the man Christ Jesus, Ephesians 4, amen? But we know for a fact that there is a parallel maturation and development taking place in the culture around us. Christianity has been a restraining influence. The law in Christianity has been a restraining influence throughout the ages, And suddenly we are seeing a level of violence and debauchery never before witnessed in our culture. It's amazing how people will blame a a new variable on a 200-year-old constant. And never even bat an eye about the utter lunacy of that perspective. Let me just give you an example. Everybody's talking about guns. And it's not my place to assess whether a discussion should be had about guns or not, but guns have been around for 250 years in this country. They have been constant. Since the Bill of Rights in 1790, we've just had the same policy toward guns pretty much. And all of a sudden we have this radical change and shift in the culture and instead of looking at what changed in the culture we go find something that has been absolutely the same guns right a 200 year old constant isn't likely to have produced this radical upheaval and change something else has produced it and nobody wants to see what that is because it's not solved with a bill from Congress. It's a lot more complex and nuanced. Its prognosis is more troubling and its cure is hard to even see. Both sides are are clamoring for big government. Liberals want to take away the the rights afforded in the uh, Bill of Rights. And conservatives want to blame mental illness that's a slippery slope neighbor reporting on neighbor trying to guess whether 
my, my brother or my sister or my friend has mental illness. Less than 3% of mass murderers currently in prison exhibited any measure of mental illness prior to their violence. So it's not, it's not really a great, a great indicator. Conservatives point out that, well, we need, we need more guns. And I acknowledge that guns are a tool that stops violence. It's not a tool that I, as a Christian, am willing to take up according to the injunctions of Jesus, but I acknowledge that they do stop violence. And so if we want to return to the bloodbath of the former West, I suppose that there is some logic in that approach. But when you're asking, when you're putting out a plea to bring cops into every school, retired police officers into every school, and and basically arm a whole lot more citizenry, aren't you just asking for more big government in another expression, in another form? And if you're asking for red, law, red flag laws, isn't that just more dangerous big government? I don't want the government speculating on my mental health. You know, in, in uh, former Soviet Union, they called Christians mentally disabled. And they robbed them, stripped them of their rights because they categorized them as mentally insane, that they would believe a man actually came out of a grave 2,000 years ago. In present-day China, serious Christians such as us in this room today, they're categorized as mentally insane and they're legally robbed of their rights because of their version of red flag laws. So the whole mental illness argument is a dangerous mess and I would avoid it like the plague. Various pundits and politicians point out that, wait a minute, you know, Hillary Clinton made the point, she said, well, we have... um, in Asia, they have video games. In Asia, they have young people like we do, but they don't have gun violence like this. Barack Obama said something similar. Joe Biden in the last uh, Uvalde massacre, he said, you know, uh, Europe doesn't struggle with these problems. We're the only modern nation that struggles with these problems. And I, I would have to say that on, on one level that, that's false because if you look historically, um, Knife violence has gone up proportionate to gun control in those other countries. Um, Slayings by machete in France, slayings by 18-wheelers, killing 80-some people, driving an 18-wheeler into a crowd. Um, So they have found other tools. It's not exactly accurate to say that violence has gone down, but gun violence has gone down uh, in those other places. you know, in London, you cannot have a pocket knife with a blade that is longer than three and a half inches without getting a permit from the state. Um, so violent crime has not gone down, but vi- uh, gun violence has gone down because it's hard to get a gun. But guns are not as essential to the evil as we think they are. You know, on the same day that Sandy Hook Elementary School uh, massacre occurred where 26 were, were killed with a, with a gun... On that same day in China, 27 were stabbed with a knife in an elementary school. And so the argument is, <laughs> it seems almost dishonest, the, the seriousness with which people revolve and pivot around the question of guns, right? Um, but they make this point about Europe and, and um, Asia, and, and, and they say that you know there are other countries that just do not have this kind of violence. I'm sure that 
Brother Ralph could point out that New Zealand does not have this kind of violence. And there are those examples. And, and it's important that we understand why. Why do those other countries not have this kind of violence? And in short, it's because if you put people in a prison, they're less likely to commit crime. You haven't changed the, the criminal, right? But they're less likely to commit crime. And so the safest place in the world is a maximum security penitentiary. The question is, how close do we want to get to this invisible penitentiary before we're willing to acknowledge that we have exchanged our freedoms for security? So when, when you have a, a, a penitentiary, you have to control uh, inflow and outflow. I've done a lot of ministry in prisons, um, maximum security, medium security, minimum security, but you have to do a lot of, um, you have to control the, the interaction between the two sides. Um, you have to control materials, contraband. Um, and, and you have to put a great emphasis on entertainment. Because people were not made to be like dogs in kennels. And so when they are hemmed in, the restrictions naturally produce greater animosity and a greater explosion of violence. The only way to divert people from these restrictions is to mesmerize them with entertainment. So any, any prison guard will tell you, any prison warden will tell you that if you took entertainment out of the prison system, they could not maintain peace for a day. So let's just imagine that we are in a modern world, especially in Europe, where that's how society is being perceived and orchestrated by the overlords. Where human beings are increasingly being funneled down certain restricted patterns and paths of behavior, and we just have to distract them enough with entertainment that they don't notice that they are living in a veritable prison system. So let me just rephrase the argument like this. When Joe Biden says, Europe doesn't have gun violence like this, I want to stand up and say, American penitentiaries don't either. Let's consider them as a viable option. I know that's a little bit of reductio ad absurdum. I don't deny that there is a... Uh, you know, a variable, a gradation between Europe's system of liberty and American penitentiaries. But the point is the same. There's something that Europe does have that America has never had up until this point. Europe has had holocausts in its most civilized nations. Asia has had holocausts in its most civilized, in all of its nations. So historically, if we look outside of the, the present day that we're living in, we can say that Europe has some advantages on the United States right now when it comes to gun violence. But broadly speaking, it'd be dishonest to say that they have advantages when it comes to violence and bloodshed as a whole. Would you agree with that? 
To date, America has never produced kamikazes. America has never produced um, the rape of Nanking or the Khmer Rouge or the Nazi Holocaust and the Third Reich. So let's, before we genuflect before Europe, let's acknowledge that there are some other things that we would rather not have that they have um, before we act like they are the end-all, be-all paragon of uh, society. The question presents itself, I'm going to get where I'm going, but just stick with me. The question presents itself, what is the most dangerous weapon in human history? If we're going to control weapons in order to limit crime, I mean, there, there is some logic and it seems like there's some reason to that. I, I'm glad that the United States does not let every redneck build his own atomic bomb. <laughs> so I, I acknowledge that, you know, there's a point where, you know, weapons should be restricted. So um, I'm thankful that I'm not wondering if this guy even has a rocket-propelled grenade, you know, neighbor or something, right? A fence dispute might become more challenging. <laughs> but what is the most dangerous weapon known to mankind in human history? Organized federal government. I'm sorry, but that is the truth. American political scientist Rudolf Rummel, after his extensive research, conservatively estimated that federal governments had killed 262 million of their own citizenry outside of war in the 20th century alone. Step over heart disease. Step over cancer. Diabetes. Poverty. War. And let's acknowledge that the bane and disease and most virulent threat to human life on earth is organized federal governments. A man with an AR-15 is dangerous, devastating, and to be feared. But the entity who takes that gun from him is infinitely more dangerous. You're not going to see these as a tit for tat. You're not going to see the, the danger of government on a daily basis like you're going to see the danger of a madman with an AR-15. But it's there. It's always there, lurking beneath the surface, waiting for enough checks and balances to re be removed from its path to seize the liberty that it has methodically undermined for decades. So, <clears throat> if we look at our system of government in the United States, we've got to acknowledge that visitors from Europe are pretty incredulous. They laugh out loud 
I mean, they just roll their eyes at the idea that Americans would actually assume that they should have AR-15s or guns in their closets. I mean, that's just, (laughs) that's absurd. Because they live under the assumption that the most dangerous thing in human history is an armed gunman instead of the most dangerous thing in human history is the savior state that they run to for protection. I'm not denying the purpose of the state. I'm not denying the God-given role of the federal government. Don't, don't get me wrong there. I believe that Romans 13 gives the, the grounds for that. But a, a European is incredulous. I, I'm not kidding. If we had some in this room today, they'd be looking at me trying to suppress a smile. I can't believe these guys even talk like this. This is madness. They're utterly incredulous at what we completely take for granted. Because the philosophy of liberty and responsibility is very much inverted between these two cultures. It's changing in this culture, but up until now, it's inverted. And so... What was it about the American system of government that was so unique, that was so different in the history of the world? What was it? Was it just that the American system of government took risks and believed in the innate goodness of man? You see, if the American system of government was predicated on the belief in the innate goodness of man then it is an experiment that is now proving to be a failure. And we've got to start rewinding those liberties as we discover the innate flaws in man. Or whatever you want to call it, the environmental flaws in man. Is that what the American system of limited government and exaggerated freedoms was predicated on? The innate goodness of man. When the founders got together in their conventions and discussed human beings, human potential, did they talk about mankind as innately and intrinsically good? And just agreed, guys, man is good. Just give him freedom and watch what he'll do with it. Because that's kind of the narrative that's been spun. That's the American perversion gospel that has been added to our schools, to our collective conversation. Give freedom and just see what he's going to do with it. He's going to kill people with it. The American system of government acknowledged overtly and repeatedly that man had limitless potential to realize his destiny and to do good in doing so. But they acknowledged that man had baser, a baser nature. That he had the demons of his nature within him. And that something had to actively restrain that fallen nature if the liberties of the responsible would become his birthright. Or remain his birthright. They explicitly tied a robust 
religion and faith to the possibility of civil liberties. John Adams, when addressing the Massachusetts militia less than two years after the Constitution was ratified, he made this statement. He said, Our Constitution was made for a moral and religious population. And then he said this about the document he had helped write. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other people. The founders created a government that necessitated a robust church and faith in the society. If faith ever fell, then civil liberties would collapse with it. The Bill of Rights is an exercise in stupidity if not coupled with a religious, faith-based society that would make people responsible to handle such dangerous freedoms as given in the Constitution. But over time, we lost this. We lost this awareness collectively. I'm going to use a term, the architects of tyranny. And when I say that, I don't mean that there were guys sitting in smoke-filled rooms puffing on cigars trying to figure out how to destroy this country, though there may have been. (laughs) I'm in Idaho. I've got to make allowance for that. But when I use the term architects of tyranny, I, I refer to the stoicheia. I refer to the demons, the spirits that have hated the possibility of what this land represented as a place where the kingdom of God could come to fruition. So when I say the architects of tyranny, let's be clear. I'm not talking about a cabal, though I'm not denying that there might be one. No, I'm serious. I'm just playing with you. I'm not talking about a cabal. So the architects of tyranny knew that they could not assault our constitutional liberties without evoking outright protest and armed conflict. Would you agree with that? And so what they did was they put up a banner called Freedom. And they said, we have got to get them to renounce the restraint that God and faith brings to society. And we're going to get them to renounce this under the banner of freedom. Freedom! Freedom! Come on, guys, freedom! We're going to bring the mantra of freedom into churches. We're going to bring it into families. We're going to bring it into the media. And we're going to talk about freedom, 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 freedom. Until people just start throwing off restraints like this. And they're going to say, freedom, 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 freedom. And then when they're all free from moral restraint and godly restraint and societal restraint and familial restraint. Then the Constitution will be absolutely impossible. The Bill of Rights will have no support. And it will crumple. And there will be no one to stop it. The church became complicit in this great betrayal. 
it failed to see that when we speak of freedom, we have to be careful. Are we speaking of freedom to the baser nature? Or are we speaking of freedom to the higher nature? To the destiny? To that which is in the image of God? Do you understand? Because the founders recognized you couldn't just hand out freedom without restraint. William Penn predated the Constitutional Conventions by some time. He, he, he famously said, Men must be governed by God or else they will be ruled by tyrants. Men must be governed by God or else they will be ruled by tyrants. We, we can see this corollary between restraint and liberty in our own children, can't we? I have six kids and I got two boys and they both go hunting with me every year. And my, um, my ten-year-old, my, uh, my Sean, he's able to, to hunt now and carefully to shoot a gun with dad and under certain restrictions. And boy, before I, ever, before I ever put that gun in his hands, I talked with him about it for years. We rehearsed lines. Never point a gun where you don't plan to shoot. Always treat a gun like it's loaded. And I just ask him randomly, what are the rules, Sean? And he'd be able to sp uh, spout them back to me. And, and, and Sean, when Daddy lets you carry this, how are you going to treat it? Like it's loaded, Daddy. You know, where are you going to point the muzzle? Always up or always down? What's going to happen? And I, I cultivated this, this relationship with him. And what was I doing? I was preparing him for a dangerous liberty. Would you agree with that? And so what I was doing was actively instilling internal restraint so that he could have the birthright of a dangerous freedom. And you can see this in the child, but this is what it's like in the society. As long as the society cultivates a restraint of our baser nature, a restraint of our carelessness, of our irresponsibility, our disregard for others, as long as God and faith are keeping that very consciously restrained, then our birthright is the Bill of Rights. As soon as that restraint is moved out of the way, do you think it would be wise for me to just go into the local school district in Waco and pick any old 10-year-old and put a 243 in their hands? Can we all agree that that would be careless to the point of murderous? That kid may not intend it, or he might, who knows, but there's no basis for him to have that freedom. But the society has become that unrestrained child. He that hindereth has been taken out of the way. And the conservatives clamor, give us back our rights, don't you take our rights. But here's the tragedy. They were part of what removed that restraint from society. Oh, yes, they were. Oh, yes, they were. You think of all of the shifts and adjustments that have taken place in the church at large under the banner of freedom. How is the 21st century American church different from the 18th century American church. Okay, we're going to stay right here for a while. 
Because the 18th century American church gave us the Constitution. So whatever judgments you have, they gave us the Constitution. And the 21st century American church is going to oversee its dismantling. Let's look at the church. The church is to blame. How is the 21st century American church different from the 18th century American church? Somebody give me some examples. Let's talk about this. Yes, sir. He said they didn't fly a trans flag over the congregation. That's for sure. Perfect example. That's an extreme, I'll say. <laughs> Sir, did you say so? Modesty has changed. Somebody write these down. Can somebody, can somebody jot these down? Modesty. Who said that? Thank you. Family structure. Sabbath observance. Yes, ma'am. Entertainment. Amen. Flesh, moral restraint, I would call that. Yes. Ma'am? Okay, nothing is sacred. Dishonor. Personal responsibility. Free grace. <laughs> Underscore that, please. <laughs> Take a mic, please. Take a mic and, and I, I expound that as long as you want to, Regina. You'll skip a whole section in my paper. The Dr. Lefevre comes out with his classes regularly. Dr. Lefevre from Baylor Theological, uh, from Truett Theological Seminary. And he likes to come and study our community as a living modern day Anabaptist community. And uh, he often points out to his students that um, we practice a level of church discipline that the Baptist church used to years ago, not even 50, would you say? If there was a man, yeah, in the 50s. Uh, if there was a man seen drinking a beer in public, he would be put out of the church until he made that right. And um, today it's just very, very different. Oh, and he make him pu publicly apologize. Yes, sir. Hmm. That's his testimony of just how, that's his testimony of how standards have slipped. So when they say, when, when students will come and say, wow, so you guys uphold a particular standard of holiness, of conduct among believers, and, and they, they seem amazed that we would hold anything. Dr. Lefevre will stand up and say, let me tell you something. What this community or this, this type of standard is not what is unusual. What is unusual is the complete liberty and the dropping of all of these standards in the name of freedom and liberty of the flesh. He said, let me tell you how the ba even just the Baptists would deal with it. So that's, that's, he, he's okay. been a real supporter of us. So 50 years ago... I'm not here to pick on the Baptist. I'm actually here to give some respect to the Baptist. But 50 years ago, the Baptists have been considered one of the most conservatives and stable Christian communities in our culture. Whether you agree with them or disagree with them, I have a lot of respect for that. Amen? But let's look at how they've changed. 50 years ago, the word Baptist was synonymous with absolutely no alcohol, absolutely no cards, absolutely no dancing, and church discipline. So if you were, this professor of theology at Truett Seminary tells us that if you were a Baptist 50 years ago and you were seen drinking a beer, you would be made to give a public apology in front of the entire church or else face church discipline. 
You go back into the 18th century, and people, the church records show that people were excommunicated for consuming alcohol, for consuming, uh, for, for using tobacco products of any kind, that lying under three times examination and persisting in a lie, you would be excommunicated from an evangelical church in America. These are mainstream evangelical churches. I'm saying sins like lying, you'd be excommunicated. They would have to bring you back in if you repented, but they were very strict. And that strictness gave us the Constitution. The culture was categorically different. Let's start down the list. Amanda, do you have a mic there? Could you, could you start down that list that people started naming? Let's just explore these topics. Go ahead. I missed a couple, but here we have um, family structure, modesty. Okay, let's start with family structure. The culture that we are part of systematically undermined fatherhood. Every cold cereal joke had a little innuendo about how stupid dad was. Right? Systematically undermined fatherhood. Why? Why do the architects of tyranny have to undermine fatherhood? Because it represents the only authority that is not backed by force. The state's authority. Max Weber, the sociologist, Dan quoted him yesterday, said... The state can be described as that entity that maintains a legitimate monopoly on the use of force. Right? That's one kind of authority. But then there's another kind of authority. Mom and dad. <laughs> and so the fatherhood of God compels you to do it from inside because of love. Because of a desire to be part of a fellowship. That's the other kind of authority. These two powers. Caesar and Christ. Amen? So... Fatherhood has been systematically undermined. They made, it, they made it so that if you divorced your husband, you would get more benefits for yourself and for your children than if you stayed married. Your welfare benefits would go up. They tried to change some of this in the 90s. But for 30 years, they took families apart. They incentivize the dissolution of families in this way. To this day, they systematically undermine fatherhood everywhere it comes on the scene. The hard, demanding father. The strict, tyrannical father. You know, every book is escaping from fatherhood, right? Well, I, I don't deny that there have been hard, tyrannical fathers. You know, it's like, I mean, just see how dangerous cults are today. I mean, have you heard? They are dangerous. I mean, the first thing anybody says whenever the church starts to become the church instead of a club, is it a cult? Because after all, statistically, you're, as, you're almost as likely to die in a cult as you are to drown in a five-gallon bucket. <laughs> now that's, that's just science. That's science, y'all. Follow the science. I mean, every aberrant wacko like Jim Jones who stomped on the Bible and called it a paper idol, they called him a Christian pastor. He wasn't a Christian pastor by any stretch. 
They called him a Christian cult. He was not a Christian cult stomping on the Bible and calling it a paper idol on video. <laughs> but he was a Christian cult. Cults, cults. Oh, we got to be careful. I acknowledge that they're dangerous. Just not nearly as dangerous as the federal government. <laughs> Just not nearly as dangerous as all the societies that everybody's fleeing the cults to join. Look at the violence in schools. Look at the bullying. Look at the rate of suicide. Is there anything more dangerous than that society right out there? Number one cause of death now, as of this year, uh, for people under the age of 25 is suicide. It surpassed car accidents. Amanda, how many people... My sister is a midwife and paramedic. How many people died of drug overdose last year? You sent me a statistic. 119,000, I wanted to say. 119,000 died of... Well, that's because they're happy. They're fulfilled. No. They're trying to fill a hole that only God can fill. But... Get God out of everything and make sure we're freed from all these awful restraints. Carry on. Modesty. Modesty. Oh, let's pick on that for a minute. <clears throat> so, if my family goes into uh, Walmart, we get everybody's attention. If somebody walks in in their underwear, nobody gives them any attention. <laughs> I'm just saying. I mean, heads just go like this. They look at people who used to look like normal people, who look like how normal people used to look. Let's put it that way. They look at them as if they were stark raving mad. And the stark raving mad, good day, how are you? It's normal. Why? The outfits that you see every day, you couldn't, you couldn't catch someone in those outfits in any church in America 80 years ago. And that line has just changed and changed and changed and changed. And we've acted like it's some kind of liberation. Woohoo! Whew! Progress! Progress to what? To what the Greeks were doing 2,500 years ago? Really? That's progress? Returning to the paganism that Christianity rejected with the man Christ Jesus? That's not progress. The Romans were doing that. 2,000 years ago. That's not progress. The Vandals and Visigoths and, and Huns were doing that. That's not progress. The Celts were doing that. Look at all the body paint and piercings. And I'm not judging anybody. We've got a lot of people in our church who you can't tell what color they are. It's changing. No, But I, that's fine. But all of this, this isn't progress. This is regress. 
This is what civilizations were doing a thousand and two thousand years ago. And it's what Christianity saved us out of. But now, something has infiltrated the church to make us believe that this is freedom. We have been able, unable to parse between freedom of the baser nature and freedom of our godly potential and destiny. Do you see the, the, the madness in this? When Alexei de Tocqueville visited the United States in the 1830s, he was a French diplomat. And he was commissioned to come to a study on, on penitentiaries in America, prisons and penitentiaries in America. So he's a European, right? And he comes over and he writes this massive book that he later calls Democracy in America. And it's very insightful to understand the viewpoint of a European in the 1830s and how he viewed the society that had given birth to the Constitution. Can we just tolerate a couple quotes from him? He said, um, he said, nothing is more striking to a European traveler in the United States than the absence of what we term the government or the administration. Written laws exist in America and one sees that they are daily executed, but although everything is in motion, the hand which gives the impulse to the social machine can nowhere be discovered. Because it wasn't the government. It was God. It was faith in society. And the government, the law, was only for those who had lost that faith. They went out to the, uh, the fringes of society and ended up in prison, right? But now they're trying to create a system that is really a kind of prison for everybody. And you won't notice if we keep you sufficiently entertained. He was astonished to see something different in America than he had experienced in Europe. He goes on and he says, um, All communities are obliged to secure their existence by submitting to a certain dose of authority, without which they fall prey to anarchy. This authority may be distributed in several ways, but it must always exist somewhere. He said, Liberty cannot be established without morality, nor morality without faith. I sought for the greatness of I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and ample rivers and it was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless forests and it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world commerce and it was not there. In her democratic congress and her matchless constitution and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good. If America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. So I'm telling you that the architects of tyranny put a leaven in the church called freedom. Let's even give it a little more. Freedom in Christ. And now we have the freedom in Christ church purveying the dismantling of our rights. But the supposedly oppressed in Christ church gave us the Constitution. I need you to pick between the two. If we brought in a Baptist contingent from the 1800s, if it were possible to march them in and sit them down here, okay, how they would be dressed, 
how their children would be behaved, how they would submit to their mommy and daddy, how they would handle the vices of the world that we live in. Okay, If we brought them in here and sat them down, everybody in this room would be a little concerned. (laughs) And almost everybody in this culture would call them a cult. This imaginary congregation is what gave us the birthright of limited government. But this liberal, flip-flopping, who-cares, free-in-Christ congregation is what has allowed for the dismantling of the moral society that even allowed for the possibility of limited government. We are seeking to be a community of intentional restraint. Understanding that restraint permits dangerous liberties that we want to participate in. We want the responsibility for our own lives. And we cannot assume that responsibility except in a context of overt restraint. If somebody looks at us, what they see is restraint. They see it through every aspect of our lives. And that's okay with us. But if they look closer, they will also see liberty. Our children will be afforded greater liberty than their children. Oh, their children will be treated with greater permissiveness in the church at large, right? Johnny will sass his mother, and he will not be permitted to do that in our family, right? And Johnny will pitch a fit about what video game he can't play, and he'll end up getting to play it. And we won't even have video games or internet or television, okay? So there's big differences. But at the end of the day, I'll put a gun in the hand of my 10-year-old with some measure of confidence that that liberty is responsibly handled. Can they do the same? More importantly, one day I'll sanction the marriage of a 20-year-old or a 21-year-old and I'll trust that that marriage will succeed. Will they have the same confidence? More importantly, all of my children have been born at home not with professionals, but with family and friends. Why were we able to assume that responsibility? Because in a community of restraint, you can give your attention and your trust to exercise responsible freedom that is not the same level of dependence common in the world around us. The church is called to be the freest place on earth and the most restrained place on earth. Free for your godly potential. Free for the image of God. Free for the gifts God put inside of you. Free for your love. Free for your sacrifice. Free for your dreams, your hopes. Free for your joy. 
but it ought to be the most intolerable place for the flesh imaginable on earth. Amen. And for those who cannot bifurcate between their fleshly freedoms and their godly responsible freedoms, they are children. And that's what we have made of our society. It's a society of infants. I will not applaud when the Second Amendment is taken from our Constitution. I will not applaud that. I do not see the virtue in that. I assure you, it will happen. It will happen. Because John Adams said the Constitution they made was insufficient, wholly inadequate for the government of any but a people we have ceased to be. Paul concisely said, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And Jesus said, out of a man's heart comes all kinds of evil. So I said yesterday that Christian repentance is the foundation of civil liberty because it deals with the problem. It deals with the source. It deals with how liberty is mishandled. And in a society that is broadly restrained, there can be universal liberty. And the exceptions will end up in prison and perhaps come to repentance there, we hope, right? But in a society that is broadly released, the society will become a prison. And that is where Europe is headed. And if we don't stop it, that's where this country is headed. So what's the answer? What's the answer? I don't know that I have an answer for the American society at large. I do know that the only way to stop the tide is for the church to become a community of unapologetic restraint on the baser nature so that it might be a community that enjoys the liberties of the sons of God. If that does not happen, I don't see any hope. If that does happen, I don't see that it will change a society of over 320 million in a snap of a finger. But maybe, maybe there will, be, there will come about these, these enclaves, these reservations of liberty throughout the country where communities refuse to accept tyranny and distract themselves with entertainment, where communities refuse to accept liberty of the flesh and call it freedom in Christ, where communities instead agree to help each other stay restrained in the baser nature that they might discover their destiny and their potential in God. Let's be one of those. Amen. I got one question for you. What changes have taken place in the last hundred years in the American church under the name of freedom in Christ? Every change that's taken place under that rubric, you should put under microscope and ask, was it a betrayal? Was it a deception? Were we being sold tyranny 
in the name of freedom. We got to turn something around.